Aren't you glad Jesus didn't die for just a few of your sins? Amen. There's a line in that song that says, uh, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Therefore, I can say, it is well. If you got your Bible, it's going to be turning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is where we will be this morning, picking back up in our study of Mark. And as you're turning there, uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to do uh, a focus on discipleship. Mark's going to bring us face to face with discipleship. We're going to see that in these next two weeks as we look through the, uh, sec- the, this, this chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. Because what he's going to do is he's going to, we're going to see this morning Jesus sends out the disciples. And then if you remember several times throughout Mark's story, he kind of sandwiches in this other story. He, he, it happens at a different time, but the way he tells it, he sandwiches it, sandwiches it in. Happened in chapter 3 and again in chapter uh, 5. So what he's going to do is he's going to show us Jesus sending the disciples. And before they get back, we're going to encounter the death of John the Baptist. And so what Mark's doing is he's, he's showing the sending of the disciples underneath this heavy reality that discipleship is costly because it costs John his life. And then as soon as John's story finishes, we'll see this morning in chapter, in verse 30, the disciples return. So we'll look at that for the next two weeks, and then for the following two weeks, we're going to kind of pull back from a verse-by-verse study, and we're going to look at eight characteristics of discipleship that Mark brings out. And we're going to ask this question of ourselves, of, of Scripture. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What's it mean to be a disciple? So if you've got your Bibles open and you're able to stand, I invite you to stand. Chapter 6, we'll pick up in the middle of verse 6. It says, And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then look at verse 30. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and thought. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you'd come and help us as we study your word. Help us to see, O oh God, what it means to follow you. Help us to see with great clarity what it means to be your disciple. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So Mark's doing a few things here. 
He's tying together the rejection that Jesus faced in Nazareth. If you remember from two weeks ago, Jesus is in his hometown and he's teaching in the synagogue and the people reject him because of his authoritative teaching. He's tying that together with the sending of the disciples because his disciples were with him as he was being rejected. You see, the people of Nazareth professed to believe in God, but the faith that they expressed, which, is what, which was a rejection of Jesus, proved that it was a false faith. And then Mark turns almost immediately to give us a very deep insight into true discipleship. So we see Nazareth giving us an a, a, a improper response to Jesus, And now we're seeing the disciples give us a proper response. Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, Jesus is by the seashore, and it says he calls the twelve to be with him, and he gave a second thing, to send them. He called the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out. And so as I said just a moment ago, the disciples are going out on mission for Jesus with this cloud, with this darkness of John the Baptist's death looming over it. That's what Mark wants us to see by tucking this story in between the going of the disciples and the return of the disciples. So if you've got your notes, you see the main idea this morning is this. In the face of rejection and death... Our mission, that is the mission of true disciples, our mission is to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom of God. So Mark 6 opens with rejection, and in the middle of Mark 6, we see the death of John the Baptist, the man whom Jesus calls the most righteous of men. And in the midst of all that, Mark is saying, don't miss the point. We are to go and make disciples and establish the kingdom, even in the face of being rejected, even in the, threat, in the face of the threat of death. So here's a few comments as we get going. Commitment to Jesus means commitment to his mission in the world. If we're going to say yes to Jesus, we're not just saying, Jesus, I'm in agreement with what you can do for me. We're saying, Jesus, I am joining the mission that you are at work carrying out in the world. And commitment to his mission means that I'm fully identified in him. It's not, it's not that Jesus is now joining my life as a team member. It's that I now find my full identity, my full worth, my full understanding of who I am as in Him. He sets the course of my life. He's the reason why I am living. He's the reason why I go, I go about and do all that I do. Amen. Mark's task is to introduce us to the real Jesus. That's what he's been trying to do from the get-go. From Mark chapter 1, he wants us, just as a reminder, he wants us to know the real Jesus. There are a lot of, quote, Jesuses in the world that aren't the real ones. And I don't mean that there's multiple saviors. What I mean by that is people try to make Jesus into someone that's comfortable. They try to make him into a savior that saves them but doesn't demand anything of them. (coughs) There are a lot of lies told about Jesus in the world, and Mark wants us to know the real Jesus. He wants us to know his life and his mission and the call that he extends to his disciples. He's introducing us to a life lived faithfully before God. 
You heard just a moment ago, Tracy asked the question, WWJD. Tracy, can you see that right there? It says WWJD. I got it on my notes. Because we, that, 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 that bracelet, that bracelet that everybody used to wear is a good reminder. What would Jesus do? But we don't have to ask that particular question. We can ask the WDJD question. What did Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Because Mark is showing us very clearly this is what a life lived faithfully before God looks like. So one of the central messages of the gospel is that we cannot live faithfully. Mark's shown us that over and over. The call to to discipleship is to live faithfully before God. The reality is that apart from Christ, we can't live faithfully before God. Jesus can and did live faithfully before God, which is why we have hope in Him. And so I'm going to argue in the story that Mark is distinctly identifying the disciples in Jesus Christ for this mission. It's not Jesus and the disciples. It's not the disciples. It's Jesus. It's the disciples in Jesus Christ. They have to be fully identified in Him. It means total identification in Jesus because of the gospel. So, how does Jesus' call to discipleship reshape the lives of his disciples? That's a question I want you to grapple with. How does Jesus' call reshape the lives of the disciples? Now, just as a reminder, he started calling them in chapter 1. He called Peter, James, and John from their, from their boats. He called Levi from his tax booth. He calls other ones from their profession. Just think about what had to occur in their lives for them to leave their livelihood and follow him. And then think about the story as it's unfolded. How has Jesus begun to reshape, remold their lives? He's, he's, he's saying to their thinking, your thinking is off. Let's, re, let's retool it. The way you understand the world is off. Let's correct that. So be thinking about how Jesus has been reshaping the lives of the disciples. And alongside of that, ask yourself that question. How has Jesus reshaped your life? How is Jesus reshaping your life? Because the reality at the end of the day is when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to change. So let's look at this story. You see on your notes there, the command to advance the kingdom of God and to go with the gospel. The disciples had been with Jesus. The first part is is fulfilled. Chapter 3, he said he called them to be with him. They've been with him. They've seen him do all kinds of incredible miracles. They've seen him calm the storm. They've seen him heal a woman with the issue of blood. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen the dead raised to life. They've also seen him rejected. They've heard him teach. If you remember Mark chapter 4 with the parables, the soil, they've heard him teach. They have been with him. They've been with him privately as he's prayed out in the wilderness. And now Jesus is going to send them. Mark's been preparing us for this. He's been preparing us to expect them to be sent out. And Jesus' own intention is to establish the kingdom of God through his mission and his ministry. The the sending out of the twelve is a natural part of God's mission in the world. So you you just saw the video of, of Kirk. Kirk said he went to a city and he planted a church. 
That's part of God's mission in the world. That churches are planted. That the gospel is proclaimed. That men and women and boys and girls hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and the kingdom grows. And guess what? The process starts right back over. Churches are planted. The gospel is proclaimed. Salvation comes. And so Jesus is sending out the twelve to do just that. And hear me well. This sets our agenda as a church. If you ever wonder... What's the role, what's the job of the New Testament church, of which Theresa Baptist is a part of? What's the role of the church? Here it is. To carry out the mission of God in the world. So, let's look at how he sends them. He sends them out two by two. There's some, there's some, practical, uh, some practical reasons behind this. First, it's an Old Testament requirement. If, if, if someone's testimony was going to be established as valid, the Old Testament tells us, hey, take two along so that the other person can say, oh yeah, that's true. I can vouch for that. But there's also the practical side of, I don't want you to be alone. I want you to be protected. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to go with someone who's going to be your friend, who's going to give you moral support. But look also... That Jesus gives them his authority. It says he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now we've seen up until this point, Mark is saying that, that this authority belongs to Jesus. Jesus isn't asking God every single time that he's doing something. He's not asking somebody else's permission when he exercises this authority. It's his to do with what he wants to. And here he is extending it to the disciples for this mission. And so the language in the text implies that as, the, as each pair comes before Jesus, he's entrusting them a measure of his authority. He's saying, I'm telling you to go and cast out unclean spirits, therefore I'm giving you the authority. I'm, I'm putting within you the power that you need to cast out the spirit as the mission demands. Now here's what he's not doing. He's not saying, all right, um, here's some power. It's yours now. He's saying, I will extend to you what you need when you need it and no more. He cast out the, uh, he gives them authority to cast out the unclean spirits. And what we will see is that they, in fact, do that. But what we will see in chapter 9 is that they'll fail in doing that. Here in chapter 6, they succeed. They cast out unclean spirits. But in chapter 9, we'll encounter a story where they fail. They try to do it, and they fail. And so what Mark is saying is that Jesus doesn't just give us authority, pat us on the back, and say, hey, go do with it what you you will. The point is that Jesus empowers his mission. You see, in Mark chapter 9, what we'll see is the disciples were trying to operate in their own power. They thought, well, hey, look what Jesus has given me. I guess I can just do it on my own now. When we deviate, when we leave the mission of God, guess what, guess what stops? The power of God. If we want to experience, well, let me ask you this. Do you want to experience the power of God in your life? All right, the right answer is yes. If you're a believer, I I want to experience the power and the presence of God. 
And what Mark is showing us is that comes in its fullness as we are on mission with God. But the point at which we depart from God's mission, which is clearly laid out in his word, the point at which we decide to go our own way, guess what stops? The power of God. God's not going to bless my own personal agenda when I've left his. And so we see Jesus giving them authority for what he calls them to do. But he also expects them to return. We see that in verse 30. He doesn't just say, hey, go and carry out your mission. He says, go and do what I've told you to and then come back. Come back and tell me how it went. Come back and tell me what happened. This is something we should, we should do. We should get together. We should go out on mission. And then we should come back and debrief. Hey, here's how many times I shared the gospel. Here's what happened. Here's the rejection I faced. Here's, here's the good soil that I experienced. But what I want us to see here is that the power and the presence of God are the rewards of discipleship. Sometimes we think of discipleship as the path to reward. If I follow God, if I, if I carry out his commands, if I do what he says, then I will get something. If I obey God, I will get blessing. If I carry out God's mission, I will get blessed or I'll, I'll get whatever. We treat it like a formula. One plus one equals two. But you see, what Mark wants us to see is that there's no formula here. There is, it's not if I do God's will, then he'll, then he'll bless me outside of it. The blessing comes from doing God's will itself. The blessing comes in being on mission with God. That's why it says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks in the way of God, who, who obeys the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. You see, if we want to experience the power and the presence of God, then we need to meet him on mission. Amen. We need to be going with the gospel. And brothers and sisters, hear me well. God promises to meet you there. If you're scared to share the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member, God promises that he will meet you in those moments. He'll give you the power and the authority you need in those moments. But let's look at how he tells them to go, the instructions on how to go with the gospel. It tells us in verse 8, he says, He charged them, take nothing except a staff. Don't take any food. Don't take any, any bag, no money. Just... A pair of sandals and one coat. It seems pretty sparse, especially when he says, don't take any food. Now, this is not uh, a, a modern day thing where there's food along the way. This is back in the day when, you know, McDonald's wasn't there. I've been to Israel, there are McDonald's now, but they weren't there then. He's telling them, he's teaching them something about what it means to be on mission with God. First, we need to recognize the urgency of God's mission. He tells them to go, that God is reigning now, that God is king right now. And so the urgency is, I need to go and proclaim that truth to everybody. God reigns now, thus I need to, I need to recognize that and live rightly in light of that. But we also see the instructions that he gives. Don't take anything. They were to trust the generosity of other people. 
He said, when somebody opens their home, stay there. Don't, don't leave somebody's home and go to somebody else's home just because they might have a nicer place. Accept people's generosity. Let other people provide what you need. And here's what he's teaching them. He's teaching them to trust God. When he says, don't take any food, what he's saying is, God will provide your food. Now, you may be thinking of of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, why are you anxious about what you're eating, what you'll wear? God God knows the birds need food, and he gives them food. Are you not of more value than the birds? The answer is yes. And so Jesus is saying, don't get caught up on material things. Be so focused on the mission that you trust God with those other things. Don't even take an extra coat. You'll be fine. Go with the gospel is the point. And here's, here's one of the application points that comes out. When we ask ourselves, am I willing to go with the gospel? Am I willing to pick up my life and move to a city? He uh, said on the video, Kirk said, uh, we moved somewhere where we didn't have any family. No friends, no connection, not even a denominational connection, he said. Would you be willing to do that? Are you so committed in your heart to the gospel that if, that if God called you to go to somewhere like that, would you go? You see, the point that that Mark is highlighting is that sometimes our willingness to go is often tied to our terms. God, I will go if you do this, this, and this. God, I'll go on this trip if he or she goes, or it's to a safe place, or if it's to a place I wanted to go. God, I'll go if it it doesn't hurt my bank account too much. God, I'll go if... We tend to tie our own terms to our willingness to obey God. But you see, Jesus sets the terms for his mission. Jesus is not waiting for us to bargain with him for a good enough deal to where he's okay with it. Jesus calls us on his terms. And the point at the end of the day is, will I obey or will I disobey? Are we fully committed to him? In Luke chapter 9, familiar story if you've read the Gospels, a young man offers to follow Jesus after he bids his family farewell. Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me first go and tell my family goodbye. A writer, Jesus says to this man, he says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's what a writer says about this. This young man wants to follow Jesus. He does, but he feels obligated to insist on his own terms. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I need to, I need to do this. The man says discipleship to this young man is a possibility which can only be realized when certain conditions have been fulfilled. Jesus, as long as you'll do what I need you to do, then I can follow you. This writer says, this is to reduce discipleship to the human level of understanding. That's to make discipleship comfortable for me. And that's not always the way that Jesus works. We've seen Jesus push the disciples into very uncomfortable situations. Remember the boat. 
Not only did he take them into a storm on purpose, not only was the boat being swamped. Do you remember what Jesus was doing? He was sleeping. I can can almost assure you that if he had given the disciples an option up front, they would have opted out of that one. I'm good, Jesus. I'll pass on the almost dying part. They wouldn't have chosen that. So we like to try to reduce discipleship down to what's comfortable for us. But here's what this guy says. He says, discipleship can tolerate no conditions which might come between Jesus and our obedience to him. Amen. The point at which we say to Jesus, I'll follow you as long as it's over. The point at which we say, Jesus, I'll go on mission with you as long as, if you, it's over. Because we've made it about ourselves at that point. What conditions might you have put on your willingness to follow Jesus? It's a question we all ask ourselves. What, where, where might I be telling Jesus, I'll follow you if? Well, the last thing he tells them to do is to condemn the ungodly. It says in verse 11, if any place won't receive you, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony. This was an old prophetic thing to do. If a prophet went into a town and they refused to hear him, then he would walk to the edge of the town and he would knock the dust off his feet. And what he was saying is, God will judge you for your rejection. He's saying, I've done my peace. I've come and I have proclaimed the truth of God to you. God will ultimately have the final say. And here's where we find our mission. Our mission is not to see converts made. Now, it's great when we do. And by God's grace, the truth of the Bible is that people will respond to the gospel. But our job is not to talk people into believing. Our job is to testify to the power and the truth of God. And when we do that, God says he will bless it. But when people reject, we need to remember, A, Jesus himself was rejected. And if I'm fully identified in him, I'm going to be rejected. If you remember our Sermon on the Mount study, he says this in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the persecuted, for so they persecuted me. Do you remember what he says? So they'll persecute you. And if I'm identified in Jesus, then as I proclaim the gospel, I'm going to experience rejection. I'm going to experience persecution. I'm going to experience all the things that Jesus experienced. But that also includes his success. That as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, people were saved. And so as much as I can expect rejection, I can expect to see dead people come alive. And that's incredible. Well, let's look at the content, the content of this mission. We've seen the instructions on how to go. We've seen what to do. Jesus tells him what to do. Now let's look at the content of the mission, the announcing of the kingdom of God. And here's where the disciples begin to act like Jesus. We want to ask that question, what would Jesus do? Mark answers it. Jesus announces the kingdom. He would testify to the power and the truth of God. He says, go and preach repentance, is what he says. Send them out and preach repentance. Verse 12, so they went out 
Proclaim that people should repent. Mark is identifying the disciples with the main thing that Jesus has been doing. Sometimes we get hung up on the miracles, on the, on the displays of power. But with all of it, what we find Jesus doing more often than not is teaching. Teaching the people the truth of God. And so that's what he sends the disciples to do. That's what he leaves us to do. Matthew 28, the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. So it says they went out and taught repentance. So I want to ask this question. What does it mean to repent? Perhaps you have heard that word, repent. It means turn from at its, at its most simple level. But what does biblical repentance look like? Because it can be more of a process than just a momentary decision. Perhaps in your life, you can think of, of particular sins you have repented over and then gone back to. You felt convicted in a moment, and so you repented in your heart, but then you went back to it. Biblical repentance is more than just changing your mind in the moment. It means changing the direction of your life. Here are some things we can note about repentance. First, it starts with the sight of sin. It means I'm actually seeing what I'm doing as wrong. I'm seeing my sin the way God sees my sin. A second thing is that I have sorrow over my sin. See, sometimes we can just get hung up saying, yeah, God says that's wrong, it's wrong, I'll turn away from it. But we never feel grieved over it. Which is why in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. That's not a blanket statement for sad folks. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 is, blessed are they who see their sin and are broken over their sin, knowing that it's an offense against God. It's It's that feeling that I am sorry for my sin. The third thing is confession of sin. I think it's where a lot of folks stop. I'm willing to repent in my heart. I'm willing to feel sorry about it, but that's it. You see, confession of sin is ultimately what brings glory to God. God already knows. It's not like we're hiding stuff from God. He already already knows what we struggle with. Confession of sin brings glory to God. It, It humbles us. It breaks us down. Because as long as you don't know what's in my heart, you can think of me what you want. You might think I'm a pretty good guy. And I might like what you think of me. And I might begin to believe what you think of me. Now, I'm not talking about myself personally. I'm just giving you an example. It's how we respond. But you see, as soon as I confess my sin, my pride is demolished. I'm immediately humbled and broken down, and I have to face the reality that I've sinned against God. Confession also releases the troubled heart. Some of you guys are walking around here so bogged down because you have a sin in your heart that you, know, you hate. You know you hate it. You know it's eating you alive, but you won't talk about it. It's strangling you from the inside out. It's eating you alive. So many people. I, I have been a pastor for about 12 years. So many people, this is where their Christian life dies. Because they think, I can just handle this sin on my own. And it's like, 
It's like swallowing Drano or something. It's going to eat you from the inside out. It's going to kill your Christian walk from the inside out. We're too prideful to say, hey, I need some help. We're too prideful to say, hey, uh, I know the Bible says everybody's a sinner. I know the Bible says everybody is, is broken. I know the Bible says everybody hates God and flees from Him apart from His grace. But I don't actually want to admit to it. I'd rather just stay over here in the shadows and die. So many people suffer needlessly because they won't confess their sin. And the Bible tells us that's how we, that's how we are released from sin when we confess it to a brother. Because it purges it out. One writer says that as long as sin remains unconfessed, it keeps us in the shadows. But as soon as it's brought into the light, it loses its power. So we confess our sins. A fourth thing we see is that we should have shame for our sin. What we've done is wrong. We have wronged a holy God. And I feel not just sorry, but I feel shame. A fifth thing is that we begin to hate our sin. As I said, as I said earlier, sometimes we just repent and go right back to it. But if I, if I go through this process and I really become to hate my sin, I'm not going to go back to it. And then lastly, if all of this occurs, we will begin to turn from our sin and turn to God with our whole heart. Because you see, the goal of repenting is not just to manufacture this peace with God. I'm not trying to just say, all right, what do I have to do so that I can be good with God? That's not repentance. That's me trying to control God. The goal of repentance is to turn to God wholly and say, whatever the cost, whatever you say, whatever the terms, I want to know you. I want to know your power and your presence. Come whatever. Amen. Well, we see that Jesus also sends them out to exercise demons, to cast them out. We see he sends them out to heal them. And with all of this, with, with the preaching of repentance, the exorcisms, the healings, what we are seeing is that they are demonstrating the coming of the kingdom of God with power. So I said a few minutes ago, if you want to experience the power and presence of God, then we go on mission with God on His terms. And guess what? When we do that, Mark is showing us very clearly, God shows up. Sometimes we try to manufacture scenarios where God will show up and we hope He blesses it without ever asking, does this honor God? Does it fit with what He says in His Word? But there is, there is a promise that if we are on mission with God, if we are preaching repentance, if we are, if we are living out gospel-centered lives, God will show up. God will bless that. God's power will be present. God's blessings will flow. The problem is that that doesn't always fit with what we want for our lives. We've bought into some otherworldly thing. We've bought into some otherworldly hope. And we keep ourselves. When we, when we decide to trust in the world, when we decide to set our terms for how we'll follow Jesus, we keep ourselves from true discipleship. So, what's the point? What do we take away from this? Well, this is part one. Part one of four. And here's, here's what I want us to take away from today. 
Being identified with Jesus is the gift of the gospel. The disciples, as I said earlier, were identified with Jesus. They acted like Jesus. They were given power from Jesus. And they were along with him as they were carrying out his mission. That's the heart of what it means to be a disciple. It's the fruit of repenting of our sin. Becoming a disciple. And so the very first question we need to ask ourselves is, have you repented? Not the, I felt bad for my sin in a moment and I turned away, but I've gone back to it. Not that I made a decision, but there's been no change in my life. I'm talking, have you repented biblically? Have you moved through, I see my sin, I hate my sin, I've confessed my sin, I've turned from it, I value what God values, I I, I want to be with God, I want Him to deal with my sin. Have Have you repented of your sin? And if you haven't, today, on the authority of God, repent of your sin. And come to faith. There's, there's no, there's no uh, special formula to say. God knows if we are repenting in our hearts. He wants to hear us. The call to repent is a call to be forgiven of sin and to know God. Sometimes we stop at the front. To repent is to be forgiven of sin. But it's also to know God and to be known by God. It's an invitation to be with Jesus and to be on mission with Jesus. So if you're a Christian in the room, two things I want you to take away. The first one is the attitude. The proper Christian attitude is, I must be with Jesus. I must. Spiritual disciplines affect our willingness and ability to obey. So if you're a Christian and you you share that, I must be with Jesus, how often are you reading the Word? How often are you meditating deeply, thinking about what you've read, memorizing it, talking about it with people? How often are you praying? What are you praying about? Are you praying that God's mission would be established in the world? Are you praying for the things that align with God's word? Are you fasting over sin in your life? What do the spiritual disciplines look like in your life? If I I really believe I must be with Jesus... Do my actions show that I feel that way? Or what might be keeping you from a deeper walk with Jesus? Maybe you've got unconfessed sin. Maybe you've got unrepentant sin. That will keep us, that will keep us from being with Jesus. Second thing we must claim is that I must advance the kingdom of God. I must be with them, but I also must be on mission with them. That means that I am trusting God to provide. That means that I am am wholeheartedly committing to preaching the gospel wherever I go. That means that the single most important thing to me is that the gospel is proclaimed and I can settle the details later. Or is there something in our lives that's more important to us than Jesus? Maybe it's a personal agenda. Maybe it's comfort. If something is in the way, brother or sister, it's not worth it. Amen. So what in your life might be keeping you from more fully embracing a life of discipleship? These are the questions we need to think on today. These are the questions that we need to think on going forward. But for now, I want us to pray.
Lord, help us to see that discipleship has two sides. You call us to be with you. You call us to know you. You call us to be known by you. But you also call us to go, Lord. You show us that in the life of the twelve. That you called them to be with you. And you were faithfully present with them, even in the midst of hardship. And yet, oh God, you sent them out. You sent them out into hardship. You said, expect to be rejected. Expect to be, to be persecuted. But also, expect to triumph. God, give us insight on, uh, on where we are, personally. God, if, if there, are, there are men and women here today who are struggling with repentance, Lord, I pray that you would work in them to bring about repentance. Holy Spirit, convict of sin and, and, and lead us to repent in biblically faithful ways. Lord, lead us to see or to, to evaluate ourselves what might be keeping us from following you more faithfully. Lord, we desire to be a church of believers who faithfully follow you. We want to experience your power and your presence. Lord, as we respond now, we pray that we would respond in faith. We pray it in your name. Amen.